Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm joined, as I am every week, by co-host Shannon Bond, who has somewhat of a maternal glow about her these days. Shannon, we have a we have a couple of pieces of very exciting news this week. That's true. First of all, you're having a baby. I'm having a baby in Congratulations. June. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Amazing. It's very exciting. Uh, is this is uh, your baby going to be the new Alpha Chat mascot? I certainly hope so. How long until we can have the baby on to discuss uh, global events and issues of international importance? Maybe we'll take it to like the end of the summer. We'll okay, see. fine, fine. Give him a few, <laughs> give him a few months to get his feet wet in the world. Uh, or her. Or her. Sorry. Second, we're giving away a Kindle. A Kindle, yes. Fill out a survey at ft.com slash alpha survey. We want to hear what you think about the show. We want to hear what you want to hear more of and less of. You know, tell us your deepest, darkest feelings about what we're doing every week. You can go to ft.com forward slash alpha survey for your chance to win a Kindle and let us know what you think about the show and how we can improve it. Shannon, you are abandoning me for like the next three segments. I'm going to have a Don Draper-esque downward spiral because of my abandonment issues for the rest of the show. But I think you have some uh, good substitutes in the <laughs> okay. meantime. Fair enough. Okay. On today's show, first up, Davos, the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, is next week in Switzerland. We talked to Felix Salmon and Jillian Tett, two people who go as much for their sociological insights that they glean from the conference as they do for what's actually said there. Uh, after that, Jillian and Felix are sticking around to talk about privacy. They both had columns about this topic uh, in the last few weeks, privacy and security, privacy and convenience, how much are we giving up? Uh, in exchange for these magnificent life-improving technologies. And then finally, Matt Klein of Alphaville is going to join me for a chat about the economics of aging populations. It is very much a hot topic in the realm of economics right now. Lots of fun stuff. Stick around. First up on the show, every January, the World Economic Forum hosts its annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. It's attended by heads of state, C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, and policymakers, not just for the meetings and the highbrow panels about the economy and politics and environment and technology. They also go for the parties, debaucherous, expensive, indulgent, and even louche parties. But is there any point to this event that generates so much attention each year? And do the world's rich and important people attending actually get anything done? Are they just there to marinate in their richness and importance? Joining me now are two journalists who attend each year, but each with a different view of the meeting's usefulness. 
First, Felix Salmon, senior editor at Fusion and host of the Slate Money podcast, which is a great podcast that I've been on and you should all listen to it, but only after you listen to Alpha Chat each week. Felix, thanks for coming in, man. I love this place. It's a swanky podcasting studio. Indeed. And you know what? It, it's a good thing you're here because you kind of owed me one. I owe you so many things <laughs> for so many reasons, Cardiff. What, do you have something specific in mind? I, I went on your podcast when you couldn't make it that one time. I bailed you out, basically. It's, it's very true. It's a three-person podcast. It was, it was the have best. have two people. It was the best podcast that Slate Money has ever done. <laughs> Thank you. And Jillian Tett, U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times, who was last on the show when we were discussing the Nikkei FT merger. Jillian, I only like having you on when we're discussing super awkward topics. (laughs) Okay, I stand prepared. Chuck Uh, it at me. Okay, Davos, next week. You two go every year. Felix, you seem to go as much for the anthropological and sociological (laughs) insights you get from watching the people there as for the actual substance, such as it is. Is that well, right? I, I thought the anthropology was my line. Anyway, <laughs> Felix, you're not He's allowed to He's the amateur anthropologist. No, Jillian does the sophisticated anthropology. I just snark at people and laugh at how idiotic Tom Friedman is being. <laughs> okay, but so the, the event itself, to somebody who's never been, does seem like this kind of hopeless, hopelessly exclusive thing, right? So before anything, why don't we just talk about what you guys actually do while you're there? What's a day at Davos like then? Right. You get up at six and you look at the news. You go through the slugs overnight. Breakfast meetings start about 7.30. Then you spend the day going to a group of meetings, um, bilaterals, but also going to the seminars and the conference debates. Mostly private or public meetings. Are these panels that are attended by hundreds and hundreds of well-to-do people? Davos or are these is things your, you're doing in private? Davos is your worst vision of high school meets the Indian caste system. In it basically, no matter high how... High school meets what? Indian caste system. What is that? Everybody who turns up at Davos is given a badge, and they have different levels of rank and different levels of access. So you're forced to walk around the entire meeting with a badge on your chest showing how important you are, or rather how unimportant you are, because everyone knows somewhere else in Davos, there's always a more important exclusive meeting they haven't been invited to. Okay. Um, But some of the meetings are private. Some of the meetings are super, super, super private. Some are public. Do you guys get the good access cards or the bad ones? There's five of them, five levels. Okay. Oh, there's Do we so journalists many get levels. like three, a level three out of five? The, the, the bottom is get? something known as a hotel badge. And then it just goes up in exquisite increments from there through about 200 different levels, many of which are not visible to the naked eye. But you have to badge yourself into everything. And there are these little handheld scanners they have. And then the screen on the handheld scanner will tell you, oh, yes, you're allowed in here. It's so but the reason why it's a bit like your worst vision of a high school movie is that you have to make the equivalent of which table you're going to sit at for lunch decision every five seconds because you walk into a party, you may or may not get into it. You have to decide who you're going to talk to. If you're taking it that seriously, I mean, what I've done in past years has been very focused on making sure that, you know, I did all the right meetings, right gatherings, right interviews and went with a very preset idea about what I had to look at. What I discovered is actually leaving yourself open to collide with the unexpected, be that an idea or topic or a group of people you hadn't thought about before, actually often yields the most rich insights and the news. The general, the general rule in Davos is 
go to things which you don't know anything about. If you go to things which you do know about, you wind up getting incredibly bored and listen to a bunch of very important people spouting platitudes and you're like, ugh. Whereas the stuff you don't know about is is possibly gives you an opportunity to learn something. But and where, where is this most likely to happen, though? This kind of spontaneous collision uh, at the parties at the or, DLD or party on around? Wednesday night. You meet it at the parties. You meet it in the panels. You meet it wandering around the Congress Center. You also meet it. It also happens a lot, bizarrely, in the endless queues to get through security checkpoints. Because in one level, Davos is an extraordinary reality show psychological experiment. You take the world's 0.01% of people who think they're that way in terms of power and influence, never mind money, um, and force them to basically be crammed to a tiny little sweaty space through a security checkpoint every five minutes because security is extremely high. And as you wait to go through the flipping X-ray machines, you're all crammed together with people you never thought you'd be crammed that close to. There's this... Thing you bump, called you the Davos it. moment. Everyone has a Davos moment every year. The very first year I went to Davos, my Davos moment was when I get off the train at Davos Platz because I was so housed out in the middle of nowhere. I needed to take the train in every morning and get on one of the little WEF shuttle buses at the conference center. And traffic is a nightmare, as you can probably imagine. And so I have this 25 minute ride in the back of a minibus, me and an Ayatollah. Just for me <laughs> chatting away happily to this very friendly Ayatollah. And only in Davos does that ever happen. Right. So it, it sounds like the, the really useful stuff happens behind the scenes. It's not the stuff you're going to see on the actual conference agenda, attending the panels or whatever. I would, actually, right? I would actually beg to differ because okay. for all the flim flam and hot air and waste of money and the champagne, one of the value of bits, reason why Davos, Davos is valuable is that actually you're bringing together a lot of people from different parts of the world who are kind of forced to define about what's the top issues they're worried about for the coming year. What are, what's top of their mind? And it's fascinating to see what is at the top of their mind and frankly, what it's not. Because often what's not being discussed, the social silences, are as telling as what's actually being discussed. But telling about what? Is it telling about the mindset of the world's great and the good? Because I, I think yeah, I mean, this it's, could it's lead telling to a lot about criticism about what, it, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's telling about the politics of Davos to a large degree and what is acceptable to the forum and to Klaus Schwab and what isn't. And like the kind of compromises that he needs to make in order to get all of these heads of state to yeah. turn up. There's certain subjects which you can't really addressed because there will there would be too much pushback by very very important people and so you're never really going to get a lot of discussion about gay rights in africa say because the africans would just not have it well yes no but i mean felix and i are both in the business of smelling the zeitgeist and trying to surf the waves of the zeitgeist and davos is pretty good at giving some hint about what the zeitgeist is if you look at the program this year what's fascinating to me is not so much what's on the program but what's not on it Because one of the things that's not on it this time is a lot of discussion about finance and financial regulation. There's only two or three sessions about financial regulation that I can see in the entire program, which given that you've got an audience that's very, very financially focused, and given that you've had absolute dominant discussion of finance in recent years, to my mind, it's very interesting. And I think it's signaling a turning point. Let me me give an example here of something that Davos seems to have missed. It comes from a story that Felix wrote after the 2012 Davos meeting, uh, and he was attending a panel that essentially was very dismissive uh, or just straight up ignoring the Occupy Wall Street movement. And he wrote, that panel really helped me understand the general Davos attitude towards Occupy, 
The delegates here don't feel threatened by it so much as they just feel a bit indignant at how misguided it is. This is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. But one is that at the time, okay, inequality as an economic topic, as something that was worthy of being a legitimate or even a primary topic of study for intellectuals, economists, something that policymakers had to consider, it didn't ascend to the heights that it did a couple of years later when Thomas Piketty's book was, you know, you know, came out, that kind of stuff. It seems to me like Occupy had a real insight into something that wasn't just a populist, but a very public middle class issue, right? And Davos ignored it. And this is now, I mean, this is something that everybody's talking about. And then the following year, suddenly inequality and the subsequent year, inequality rocketed to the top of Davos's official things that we're worried about, although it seems to have disappeared again this year for some reason. So is it a Um, lagging lagging indicator then what's happening at Davos or is it something that's, you know, I think people get like, I think one of the reasons you're seeing less talk about financial regulation is that people do get a little bit bored of these subjects and they feel that they've said everything there is to say a million times about, you know, macro prudential, blah, blah, blah. And they feel, do I really need to have that same conversation for the eighth year in a row? And the answer, of course, is yes, they do, but they are going to move on. I feel inequality as well at this point, there's still going to be talk about it. And there's going to be a lot of sort of ritual hand wringing about it. But remember, these are the number one beneficiaries of inequality that we're talking about here. And there's a limit to how much, um, you know, self-abasement they can really inflict on themselves before they <laughs> retire to their Oleg Deripaska party and, you know, eat <laughs> caviar. Right. What they are talking about this year instead of it's a very, very tech-heavy um, program. Lots and lots of emphasis on innovation, on technology, um, the challenges for jobs, the, you know, potential solutions they pose, et cetera, et cetera. You can sit there and roll your eyes and say, listen, this is just the elites playing with a bunch of toys. But I think it probably does also reflect a wider debate about, say, the regulatory fights between European regulators and then Silicon Valley tech companies, um, the privacy issues, and also the big, big question of what digitization is doing to the corporate world more generally, the rise of the gig economy. And those are big issues. Okay. And so just for our listeners, the theme of this year's Davos <laughs> There's meeting. always a theme. Is you can always called, ignore it. Right. It's something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And, and Klaus, bless him, the, the Klaus Schwab, dear the leader of the, of the WEF, has right. written an entire book <laughs> called <laughs> uh, under the title of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which I'm sure everyone will have read before they make their way to the top of the Alp. I, as far as I can tell, what the Fourth Industrial Revolution is referring to, according to Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, right, is that all of these innovations in the information technology revolution are now starting to migrate to the physical world, right? That's what he's talking about. If you read the book, because frankly, I haven't. Beyond that, no, but beyond that, it does get lost in a lot of platitudinous stuff of the kind that you can sort of expect at a thing like Davos. But let's talk about the agenda itself. Uh, Is there anything in particular next week that you guys are looking forward to seeing? Uh, any, Any meetings or any panels that you guys are actually looking forward to attending? Jillian. Well, I'm very interested in, in in terms of what happens to the issue of migration. Um, I've just written a column actually pointing out that there's been extraordinarily little effort by companies to deal with the question of the migrants and refugee crisis. But there are some initiatives underway um, to try and put this on the agenda in Davos next week. It'll be interesting to see if anything happens about that. I am chairing a panel. I'm moderating a panel about finance, the future of finance. 
it's been framed as much about fintech as about regulation. And I must admit, even my heart rose at the thought about talking about, you know, flashy apps rather than endless Basel three, four, five, six, seven um, reform programs. But the topic issue in my mind is really looking to see what the South Africans still say, who, if anyone turns up from China and what they do, if there are any Brazilians, you know, around. And really just more broadly, you know, how is the global economy going to respond to a potential big shift in capital flows? Felix? Oil, I think, you know, is going to be just sort of everywhere and inflecting everything. Um, I'm fascinated to see what, what people are thinking about that. And I think Gillian's right. One of the things, one of the constant things you see in Davos is this way of sort of arbitraging labor, finding labor forces which aren't being as productive as they should be and doing everything you can to try and let them unleash their potential. And this has been going on for a long time in the emerging markets. And then there was a big move into sort of women and girls to make sure that they could achieve their potential. And now the massive audience of like highly educated and skilled people uh, who are migrants is just there for the um, taking as as it were. So I have a feel feeling, I think Paul Rome is going to be there. The growth economist. The, the you know who who really loves this idea of like just creating cities full of migrants and letting them you know add loads of value in some obscure bit of Honduras or something like that you know it's that is the next logical step that's the next logical population of people who are clearly being underexploited and who would love to be able to work much more than they are okay last question at some point next week. Klaus Schwab pulls you guys aside and says, hang on, man, I need to I need to revamp how we do things here. OK, uh, I want to do this better. Jillian, you wrote a book about silos earlier this mm-hmm. year, but now you're saying that Davos, which is already very exclusive, also has a way of making each of its particular events even more exclusive. Right. Five levels of things, whatever. How could Davos do things better uh, in order to, I don't know, come up with more you know, useful insights and things that are applicable to policymakers and to the world? Well, not put it in such a flipping inconvenient place to start off with. So so a couple of years ago, Ariana Huffington and I came up with this plan. We reckoned that Switzerland does not need this massive influx of billions of dollars every every year. And while it's very important that Davos takes place in a small self-contained town, which is hard to get into and hard to get out of, you don't want people just kind of moving in and out. It didn't work when it was in New York in 2002 for precisely that reason. You need to have people in a contained space and bumping into each other and have the serendipity that Gillian was talking about. But it doesn't need to be on top of an Alp in January. So our plan was move it to the island of Patmos in Greece, which is much warmer, much more pleasant, about the same size. You can still have the billionaires parking their yachts off the shoreline and that kind of thing. But it would do wonders for the Greek Greek economy, yeah, they you know, the money. which needs it more than the Swiss do. Fair enough. Okay. That's a great idea. Same principle you can apply to Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At least, uh, at least it won't feel very virtuous. <laughs> okay. So much for Davos. Everybody should read Jillian's and Felix's columns coming out of there next week. But let's move on to the second topic. Out of uh, complete coincidence, the both of you had recent columns about privacy. Jillian's was about privacy and safety. Felix's was about privacy and convenience. So we're going to talk about that now. Jillian, we're going to start with you. Okay. Your column was an idea that came out of an experience you had on New Year's Eve. What yeah, happened? Yeah. Well, I, on New Year's Eve, 
I got dragged to Times Square by my daughter, who was desperately keen to see the festivities and watch the ball drop. And I must say, I was pretty torn when she suggested it because, A, I didn't really want to go in a queue for hours in the crowd. It's the eighth circle of hell, isn't it? It is the eighth circle of hell, unless you're 12 years old, in which case it's actually so cool because you can take selfies and Instagram it. But um, more to the point, you know, the back of my mind was this slight thing, well, you know what? If the terrorists are going to attack anywhere, actually, Times Square is a pretty risky place. And I thought it was ridiculous. You know, I grew up in London with the IRA bombing us all the time. So, I, you know, I said, of course, we're going to go. Don't be, we're, we're definitely going to go. Anyway, so we're standing on Times Square or near Times Square and we're approaching midnight and there's Jesse J singing. And suddenly the sky is full of helicopters who are overhead monitoring us. And they're so close and so loud, they drown out the music. And something amazing happens because I have always been pretty terrified of helicopters for the last couple of decades because I worked in the former Soviet Union when it was breaking up, covered a lot of very nasty small wars, saw some really bad stuff happen with helicopters in small urban places. And the noise of the blades has always left me with absolute terror in my stomach. You know, it's it's totally involuntary. But for the first time in really two decades, when I heard the helicopters, to my shock and frankly shame, I didn't go, oh my God, there's a horrible government overhead watching me. I actually went, phew, at least they're watching us. At least we know if there's going to be attack, they're monitoring us. And I suddenly realized there's such has been this insidious climate of fear that's built up in the last two years that even I, somebody who's defended civil liberties for much of my life, I'm almost feeling I'd prefer to be watched rather than not be watched. Security theatre may just be theatre, but it still works. And if you could just walk straight onto an aeroplane like you used to be able to in the 1970s, it wouldn't, statistically speaking, be less safe, but everyone would feel less safe. We've come to rely on the security theatre. I can't imagine that some would be, you know, suicide bomber in Times Square would possibly be dissuaded from doing that by a helicopter. But somehow it makes it does make people feel safer. And I frankly, I feel ashamed of that. You know, I when I worked in the former Soviet Union, you know, I loathed the idea of any form of government surveillance. I thought that privacy um, was the most important thing at almost any cost. But I can feel that I'm shifting. And after I wrote my column about this, I had some quite moving letters. I had some people saying, you know, you saw that completely. You know, this is outrageous. Um, This morning, I got a very moving email from a lawyer in London who's actually at the very forefront of privacy campaigns. And he said, you know what, although I spend my days campaigning for consumer and voter privacy, I actually share many of your feelings. Does that carry over to your kind of mundane day-to-day life? Not yours specifically <laughs> mundane, but your, you know, it's everybody's day-to-day life. So you, you had this experience during a holiday surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people. You're there with your daughter. Everything is going to be a little bit more acutely felt. Mm. You know, in your day-to-day life, do you think about like the fact that there are cameras watching you when you walk into the building and on the street and things like that? How do you think about the trade-off and just the way you sort of go well, about I am completely schizophrenic. I'm appalled by the fact that we are so monitored and so watched all the time. You know, I read Brave New World. I read 1984 when I was, you know, growing up as a kid. And that left me absolutely convinced that governments will always try to use terror and horror um, or concept perceptions of it to try and control the populations. And I don't want to go down that path. And yet I'm human too. So frankly, it's a dilemma. Yeah, I like the admission of uncertainty at the end of your column as well. You're not really sure where you come out on it. Felix, what do you think? I am opposed to security theater just because it causes enormous amounts of economic pain and just standing in lines and being miserable and 
I, if it went away, yeah, there would be a period where we might feel less safe, which, okay, we feel less safe. That's probably not such a bad thing either. Terrorism is not statistically important cause of death in this country. It's not something which we really should be spending our lives being worried about. You know, car crashes, sure, but we don't spend our lives being too worried about those. So let's put this all into proportion, not live in this kind of paranoid world, get rid of the security theater, and not give as much sort of media attention to things which are statistically kind of irrelevant. Well, I kind of agree with you, um, Felix. The one thing I would say is that somebody who did repeatedly take crazy, crazy risks um, 20 years ago in war zones, um, and, and also on ski slopes, I have to admit too, having a daughter, having two kids has changed my feeling. Let's turn to privacy and, or excuse me, the two of your English privacy and <laughs> convenience a story that Felix wrote about the Internet of Things. Last week, we talked about the Consumer Electronics Show. Essentially, for our listeners, the Internet of Things, if you haven't been keeping up with this stuff, is the idea that now in the physical world, all of your stuff, the stuff that surrounds you, is going to share information with each other, essentially. So your refrigerator and your laundry and your car and everything. It's going to make your life a lot more convenient because you'll walk into your house and your house will be heated or cooled to the temperature you like without your having to actually do anything. But it also creates opportunities for people to essentially hack into your life. Felix, how do you think about this trade-off? I, I think of it going back to, what, like almost 15 years now to when the iPod first came out and it had these crappy little earbuds and you would list, listen to highly compressed mp3s and the music quality was way lower than anyone had ever had up until that point there was this massive step down in music quality and it just became this global phenomenon because privacy always i mean convenience just trumps everything else and so if i can just walk in to my front door because my phone talks to my door and I don't need to fiddle around with my keys and worry about losing them and that kind of thing. The convenience of that is so great that I am going to be able to, I, I will be okay with some theoretical risk that someone is going to hack my door. And so what we wind up with is an entire life of objects which are all connected to the cloud, any one of which can probably get hacked. There was recently a test of baby monitors, which basically shows that all of them have these massive weaknesses and pretty much all of them can get hacked. There's a fridge from Samsung, which is connected to your Google account. And somehow you can, it's trivially easy to just hack the fridge and get into someone's entire life, basically through their Google account. Um, these things are going to happen and they're not going to happen to most people. When they happen to occasional people, it's going to be very damaging. But the bigger picture is that the amount of convenience that the broad public gets from these things is going to outweigh the occasional hacks and, and privacy invasions that are inevitably going to accompany them. Doesn't something about this feel kind of passive? In other words, we have these conveniences, we embrace them because who wouldn't embrace a, a glorious new technological convenience? And yet we're not really thinking about this trade-off as much as, as you are, right? In other words, it, this is all laid out very explicitly in your column. But in our day-to-day -day lives, we just think, God, this is cool new gadget. I'm just, yeah, I'll take it. And nobody's really thinking about what might what the world might look like in 10 years. Well, that's because nobody understands the technology. 
And to me, it all smacks of deja vu. It's terribly like the financial world before 2007, where basically you had a tiny pool of technical experts who basically were like priests inside the medieval church speaking financial Latin, that nobody in the congregation had the foggiest idea what they were talking about, and yet sat there dumbly, didn't ask questions because they were enjoying the blessings, and the whole thing had seemingly been blessed by the Pope, you know, Alan Greenspan. What do you have in the tech world today is a tiny coterie of tech experts who essentially are doing something no one else understands once again, but most of us do not actually challenge because we don't have the information to make judgments about those trade-offs. Well, let me ask you about a, a previous technolo- technological revolution, um, which was broadly adopted worldwide because of the huge rise in convenience that it meant and which was accompanied by just also astonishing amounts of pollution and death and all manner of stuff, which is the motor car. So, you know, I invent the motor car 100 years ago, you know, maybe a bit less. And there's a few people, and there were actually quite a lot of people when the motor car was invented saying, this is scary, this is dangerous. Does it really matter? I mean, looking back on things, you can't stop that from happening. There's a certain inevitability to this kind of technology just taking over. And even if you have your eyes wide open and you know that there's going to be car crashes and there's going to be super highways and it's going to cause all manner of bloat and horrible things, it's going to happen anyway, no? So the idea here, and this was in your column as well, is that the ethical trade-off here is that since most people will benefit quite a bit from all these things, only a few will be harmed, but that applies to so many other facets of our lives that it's worth embracing these new things right well i'm saying i mean like everyone is harmed by motor cars as well as you know but we all have a benefit like that one's actually a clo- a more closer way off i think when it comes to the internet of things yeah you have a small number of little things which make our lives better from minute to minute and from day to day and it's hard to aggregate that but if you do it's going to be greater than any individual sort of privacy implications but that's just my view and it's it's very easy to take the other side of that and it's not wrong to take the other side of sure that. no the, the ethical calculus there does sound right and yet it also seems a little bit too easy to just say there's nothing we can really do about this right that at least our world is getting better shouldn't there be some role either for policymakers or some obligation from the companies to do what they can to mitigate this stuff. I guess I guess that's sort of what I'm what I'm trying to work out so here. Is what what the else Germans should we be doing, doing? Right. The locus of that is Germany. Uh, that when, sorry, explain what, what's when going on. when technology companies invent some wonderful whiz bang new technology. The most likely place that you're going to find regulators and politicians pushing back against it and saying no, you're not allowed to do that is generally Germany. So, you know, Google Maps, you know, when they roll out Street View, everyone's like, hey, it's a way for me to see what this looks like. And no one thinks twice about it in Palo Alto. But the minute they try to do it in Munich, there's this, you know, crackdown by by the German government. And and Uber is another great example when everyone's like, well, you know, there's downsides and there's upsides, but it's progress and it's technology and there's nothing we can do about it and it's in every city in america they're retreating from germany they, there are cities where it was in germany and it's not anymore because they're finding it very hard to get any traction there so i think if you, if you want to look at a world where people take these issues very very seriously and push back against them and see what it's like to live in a society where these things don't happen it does exist i mean we, it's called germany and you can move there okay 
Julian Tett, Felix Salmon, thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, on the show, the economics of aging. I'm going to talk about this with my Alphaville colleague and columnist, Matt Klein. Matt, welcome back to Alpha Chat. Thanks for having me, Cardiff. Okay, so the economics of aging has become increasingly important in the last couple of years, right? So, you know, not just in the US, but in other parts of the developed world, uh, Japan and Germany come to mind where I think there the workforce is actively expected to shrink in the near term. Is that right? That's right. Actually, they have been shrinking. So if you look at Japan as sort of an extreme example, since about 2003, the population of people aged 15 to 64, which is sort of the normal definition of the working age population, right or wrong, that's what people say, it's shrunk by about 8 million people since 2003 in Japan. Out of a country of? Out of a country, I think the population now is around 120 million, give or take. Okay, so fairly it's substantial. A, yeah, significant. You know, and it's share a, of their and it's a portion of the population of that age group. I mean, it's even, I mean, this is a significant decline. I think about 10%. Okay, so th- this could have potentially all kinds of economic effects, right? So if you take the one that seems the most straightforward, it's that a smaller workforce means that you're going to have slower economic growth fewer people working. And if the workers who are left aren't that much more productive, then you end up with, just by a simple mathematical definition, relationship, you end up with slower economic growth. That's one potential outcome. There's another one that's been debated in the last year or so that I think is really interesting. And this is what you've been looking at in your work. And the idea there is that because the workforce is either expected to shrink or in some in some places the growth in the workforce that's been you know the trend to this point is expected to slow right essentially what's going to happen is that the remaining workers are going to have that much more power over the economy because companies are going to have to bid their wages up in order to retain the talent that's what you were looking at and right. so the question is is that true is this uh, coming future where the workforce shrinks or in or has its growth rate slow, is that going to be a world that's better for workers? So I think the the short answer is there's no way really to tell because the things that actually affect the well-being of workers, it seems like they're completely independent of the number of workers that are around. So I think the starting point for any discussion of this has to be Japan because if you look at what's happened in Japan since 1995, it's basically exactly what the UN projects is going to happen to the rich world as a whole from now through 2065. So you know, it's a pretty. It should be a pretty good guy in terms of the growth of the aging popula- aged population, the shrinkage of the labor force, etc. What we've seen in Japan is that the share of national income going to workers has basically followed the exact same downward trajectory as it has in the U.S. and other rich countries. Really, and that uh, wages there. I mean, the inequality there has always been lower than it has in, say, the U.S., but it actually has increased somewhat. So it, it's not. There's not really any immediate evidence to suggest that there's this shift in power from capital to labor. Do we know why that? why it doesn't happen. In other words, the relationship that's put forward by this hypothesis, right? In other words, the the sort of mechanical way in which this might work, right? Fewer workers means that there's more competition for the workers who are there. That sort of seems to make sense, okay? It's intuitive. The outcome, therefore, is not intuitive. Why do you think it's happening? Well, I think one reason is that the change in the population doesn't actually translate to the change in workers. So even though there's been this massive decline in the number of Japanese of working age, the actual number of Japanese workers has gone up. 
Oh, okay. Well, uh, that's a different situation. It is a different situation, but but it's very relevant for this discussion because if you're baking your if you're basing your assumption on this demographic projection for decades out, but you're gonna have a relatively small tweak in the share of people who are working. Right. Uh, in Japan's case, in particular, it was both the elderly and mostly women. That was really where the big shift was was uh, among women's willingness to, to participate and be active in the workforce. That can more than overwhelm. Uh, what are relatively small demographic changes. So what happened in Japan is that just since 2003, 8 million people of age 15 to 64 disappeared. But the actual total employment went up because you had so many millions of women entering the workforce. You had men who had been out of the workforce reentering the workforce. And the net effect was actually to have a bigger number of people employed than were employed before. Okay. And so the issue therefore might be that this could replicate itself in other places. So maybe in the U.S., which can't have another kind of massive surge in female participation because we already had that, right? In other words, it sounds like from what you're saying that that process in Japan... You no, know, I'm not even sure that's true necessarily. Okay. I mean, that, that, like Japan, actually, their female labor participation is now significantly higher than the U.S. So, I mean, the U.S. is now laggard. If, if the U.S. were to match, say, Canada... Uh, I was just looking at this in female um, labor force, in, sorry, in female right. in female employment specifically, because okay. you know, I mean, I think the unemployment rates are pretty comparable. But just right. I was looking at employment, you would add about six and a half million jobs right now in the U.S., which is pretty significant. Yeah, it is significant. Um, uh, that you know, so I, I think there definitely is. And if you were to, I mean, if you go even further and say like, what if women were in the workforce as much as men, then that would be something like twelve and a half million jobs. So. There clearly is, I think, a lot of. I'm not saying like we can make a judgment on how many people should be working or not working. Maybe you know you don't want to work. That's fine. But I think that if we're thinking about simply the relationship between the number of people and the number of workers, it's not really as straightforward as you know people would think. What What about older people uh, delaying their retirement more? No, voluntarily, not because they need right. to, but just because the work's available. People in general like working. I think a lot of people underestimate that. Right, and so they stick around a little bit longer just because there is demand for the labor. That could definitely have a big effect as well. So even if we're not talking about people who are outside of what we think of as working age, we look at sort of the tail end of it, say the 55 to 64 group, their share of employment is lower than for people in say the 25 to 54. So I think it's something on the order of like 77% have a job in the 25 to 54 versus like 60% roughly in, in the US. So if you were to increase that, we're, again, we're talking about millions and millions of extra jobs immediately. You know, again, it's the questions of, you know, are they displacing other people or whatever? But in terms of, in the, if, if the problem is a shortage of workers, that's, that, that, that can be solved very easily by the existing number of people we have. Right. Okay. So this is interesting because you're not making the argument that demographics can't have this effect or that demographics don't matter at all. It's that there are changes that are sometimes unexpected within those demographic trends. Absolutely. Okay. That end up having this effect whereby you'd expect there to be more power going to labor, higher wages, and instead that doesn't happen because people go back to work that you didn't expect to work in your That's initial right. projection. That's definitely part. I think there's another element too, and this is a little more speculative, but I think it's reasonable, which is again focusing on the question of Japan. If you're a much older society, you have a lot less need for investment. And that it it's not I think a coincidence that if you look at the behavior of Japanese businesses, obviously some of it was related to sort of the aftermath of the bust, but it's been 25 years since their bubble has burst, and yet you're still seeing incredibly high net saving by the Japanese corporate sector and low investment. And you could say that some of it is reasonable if you figure that you know your customer base is shrinking over time. Like, why would you want to invest a lot? That's also something that is bad for workers. That's something that also is not going to show up 
in the way sort of the demographic determinists are going to say might show up in terms of, say, higher real interest rates or these other factors. So I think that there's, you know, the, the way all these things fit together and linkages are very complex. And uh, I mean, it ten, is that if we could sort of use Japan as our main example, because it's, it's the only country that's actually gone through this, it looks like it could easily be, you know, opposite of what people are saying. And then there's, I guess, the possibility that we're still looking at sample sizes that are pretty small, right? We're mainly looking to Japan as an example of an advanced economy that's had this experience of a shrinking demographic and a shrinking workforce, right? Whereas that's right. the outcomes could very well be different for other places with different economic structures absolutely, um, or just for differences that we can't really anticipate. Right. Okay. So it's interesting because still a lot of uncertainty about this. And I think we just have to admit that up front, that these, right. these hypotheses that say, well, fewer workers means more power for the remaining workers. These things could still be untrue. That relationship might not necessarily hold for unexpected reasons. Right. Okay. Matt Klein, look forward to this post. Check it out on FT Alphaville. Thanks, Herman. And in the follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasek joins us as always. Amelia. Hello, Kata. Welcome back to New York. It's a beautiful, cold day outside. <laughs> that those are contradictory ideas. It can't be beautiful and cold. Mm, I'm it from is. Tampa, it says Florida. The Floridian. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> okay. Well, as an Australian, I appreciate the light that you get here, even when it's cold. Uh, last week's show, what did mm. you think? Very interesting, of course, as always. I was curious about, so we had the segment with Barney Jobson about the eBay for guns. Armslist.com. Dot com. And there was a remark that mass shootings would not be prevented by the expansion of background checks, which Barack Obama has been proposing. And I was intrigued by that. And I wondered... That was a remark that Barney made, or this yeah. is a new stat that came out or something No, it like was that. a remark that Barney made about the pro-gun lobby. Oh, that's their argument. Yeah, saying oh. that these murders that are occurring wouldn't be prevented. Well, that, I think the point is, I mean, their argument is that they, that many of the guns used in those cases are bought legally, bought with background checks, mm. you know, or, you know, bought by people. So does that mean that Barack Obama's solution to the gun crisis is a Band-Aid at best? I mean, I think his preferred solution is the one that's not going to be politically um, you know, feasible, right? So mm -hmm. I think the solution that he's settled on for now, he would probably admit himself, isn't enough, but it's what he could do just by using executive authority to do something a lot more serious. He would need Congress involved, mm. you know, in terms of how effective just what he did would be. Obviously, the gun lobby is going to complain, but I, I suspect that that's something that, that would be contested by, you know, people who agree with Obama's position. It was a slightly sad conclusion, I, I felt, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and the other segment on CES and all the exciting things, yes. uh, I was curious, as cord-cutting millennials or slightly post-millennial in some cases, um, whether you've tried VR. I have not. Have you, Shannon? Um, I haven't tried the super fancy like Oculus VR, but the six hundred dollar, the six hundred dollar one. Um, I've tried. I've, I've obviously tried Google Cardboard, which I think most of us have probably tried at this mm. point. And I've tried one of the Samsung ones that's a little fancier, but that still uses a smartphone screen. And you know they're interesting and immersive. I think the idea of sort of the the power that you get from the ones that are 
um, attached to a like a PC that are powered have had like the fuller power of a computer versus a mobile phone. I've, I've heard they're much more amazing, but I haven't used them. We'll have to ask uh, Matt Garahan next time he's on. And he Cardiff, would you get an internet fridge? Tell you, would I get an internet <laughs> fridge? I don't know. I'll tell you what. I used to be a cord cutter. I'm now post cord cutting. Oh, he's come full circle. <laughs> yeah, come full circle. I'm post cord cutting. So I I don't know uh, if I would get an internet fridge just yet. I guess it depends on just how much more convenient it would make my life. Because the immediate upfront cost of making my life inconvenient by having to buy a whole new fridge sounds awful. <laughs> you know. Also, well, I wonder, do you have to put your milk in a certain spot in the fridge so for the fridge to know that, to know that well, it's going I thought it was just a video camera. I think it's just a video camera. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, and I, I, I had a moment the other day where I had gone grocery shopping and I had asked my husband if we had something and he said we had it and I got home and we didn't have it. And I was like, well, if I had had a camera <laughs> in the stupid fridge, then maybe I would have known. Yeah, then you could have looked it up at the, <laughs> at the grocery store. Secret. So I, I guess I'm but it I'm seems just like an indulgence. Wait. Yeah, I'm just going to wait until it becomes like the standard thing and then I'll just move into a new place that already has it okay. rather than forcing the issue. So I'm until happy then, to, I'm it's happy a dumb yeah. fridge. You can I'm happy to wait. Dumb well, and to be fridge. fair, we're all New Yorkers who rent, right? So none of us have like bought a big appliance. And in my case, I just don't cook that much. <laughs> no, because I, I had experiences myself with the Nest device and we were having Nest Wars in our household over Christmas with, uh, with, a, with, the, with the heating, with the, with the thermostat, yeah, because, yeah, you know, I'm a girl. I like warm, even though I like appreciate the cold day outside. And uh, so we, you, with this app on your phone, you basically can override the other person. And we were doing with the music, which actually you can do from outside the house. I was in a completely different part of London, turning on and off the music in the house, which was really messing with my husband's brain. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think that uh, the whole Internet of Things phenomenon, though, is at this point an inevitability. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to probably get there faster than we think. Earlier on the show, we spoke to Jillian and Felix about the privacy that we're compromising by um, by moving to this world. And I, I don't think we're thinking about it enough, but I'm also not sure exactly what to do about it, right? Like, I, I think that's something to explore in a future show. Sounds good. Emilia Mahasek, thanks as always. Thank you, Kata. Amelia, what are you reading this week? So I was reading Sean Penn's piece in The Rolling Stone on El Chapo because as someone who binge-watched Narcos on Netflix about the life of Pablo Escobar, I was, I'm fascinated with El Chapo the same way everybody else is. It's interesting. It's, a, it's quite a long piece in Rolling Stone and it is very filmic. He even talks about flash frame, you know, and all that kind of thing. He's, he, he writes in a very filmic way. Sean Penn, it's hard to escape this underlying feeling of disquiet that he's gone along, you know, under the guise of journalism and an open mind to interview a criminal. While, while real journalists reporting on the cartels are being shot dead. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Felix. So my long-form recommendation is literally a long-form recommendation. If you listen to podcasts, as you do, almost by definition, you should be listening to the long-form podcast, which yes. is a fantastic podcast where they talk to writers about how they write. And I'm only, I've only been on Alpha Chat once, so it's taken me a while to come on and be able to say this. But the single best podcast episode of 2015, of any podcast in all of 2015, was the long-form interview with Carol Loomis, who is the like hero of all financial journalists everywhere. She is absolutely amazing. And I have never heard or seen an interview like it. She goes into enormous detail. And at the end of it, you come 
away with such an amazing understanding of her, how financial journalism used to work, how it works now, and what it is to just be an incredibly great financial journalist. And just, it's very human, it's very funny, it's super easy to listen to. I can highly, highly recommend it. Jillian, uh, your long-form recommendation for My long-form recommendation is actually the latest edition of Foreign Affairs, which is a publication, to be honest, I don't always read because a lot of it tends to be talking about the Middle East peace process or the lack of it, etc., etc. This month's edition, though, has four or five fabulous essays on income inequality. Very thoughtful. And to my mind, two big points come out of those different essays. One is that it's really not about have and have-nots in terms of just money today in the West. It's about have access to technology and do not have access to technology. That's going to be a growing issue in the years ahead. Secondly, if you go back to the 19th century, 19th century society in the Western world had to make a choice between whether they were going to have a social explosion from income inequality or whether they would have fiscal reform. Something similar but not identical happened in the early years of the 20th century in terms of whether they were going to have the hitherto unpalatable idea of a welfare state run by the government or another form of social explosion. I think today's big question is whether dirty words like redistribution are going to come back on the agenda as the technology revolution gathers pace. Something I read over winter break, I highly recommend. It's called Super Forecasters by a guy named Philip Tetlock. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and is, he put together thousands of people to have them basically see if they could predict the future and identify the people who were very good at it. And the book is, tells their stories. I am recommending a 650-page book by an economist. I promise it's the last time I'm going to do that. It's called The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon. It doesn't have too much in the way of like fancy metrics and all that stuff. It actually is written in plain, unadorned English, and it's a really good explanation of how the various technological advances that the U.S. has experienced since the Civil War have changed our day-to-day lives. It is a pessimistic and unjustifiably pessimistic, I think, take on the future of American productivity growth, right? So I I don't quite agree with his conclusions in the last third of the book, but I think the first two thirds of the book are a really useful uh, chronicle of how our lives have improved in ways that maybe we all take for granted a little too much. Um, My household has been um, enjoying Wolf Hall, uh, the BBC production that's available on PBS. I'd read the book a couple years ago by Hilary Mantel, and it's just an excellent, really immersive, I wouldn't say fun, but like highly enjoyable uh, TV watching experience. Shannon, as I always am at the end of the show, I am wiped. You want to take us home? All right, Cardiff. Uh, that is our show. We'd love to hear what you think. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. You can leave a voicemail. You can also email us or record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to alphachat at ft.com. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. And you know what? The economies of the developed world might be aging, but so long as Amy Keene, the offensively young and talented Amy Keene, is editing and producing Alpha Chat, there is hope. Thanks so much for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll be back next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. 